going back to Parthen for a second, that entire event transformed what Valentine's Day meant for me for years. Parthen happened on, you know, 214, 2018. So I had to personally make the effort to redefine that day in my life, um, you know, and not make it mean something that was truly horrific, a reminder of, uh, of a horrible experience. Um, and a horrible, a horrible event in my community was something that I really had to take time to work on. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard. And calling into the show today, we have Kai Korber. Kai is a Parkland shooting survivor, mental health activist, and founder of the nonprofit, the Societal Reform Corporation. He has made appearances on The View, The Daily Show, and has been featured in dozens of publications, including Time Magazine and The New York Times. Kai, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. So, uh, Kai, let, let's address the elephant in the room first. For years, the, the Parkland shooting was described as one of the deadliest school shootings in recent history. But back in May in Texas, another school shooting occurred that was sadly deadlier than Parkland. As a Parkland school shooting survivor, what emotions came up for you upon hearing that news? Well, I can tell you that going back to Parkland for a second, at least in terms of like recounting my experience there, that entire event transformed what Valentine's Day meant for me for years. Parkland happened on, you know, 214, 2018. So I had to personally make the effort to redefine that day in my life, um, you know, and not make it mean something that was truly horrific, a reminder of, uh, of a horrible experience um, and a horrible, a horrible event in my community was something that I really had to take time to work on. So I know that Uvalde is having to do the same thing. And, you know, uh, every time that anniversary rolls around, those those same feelings arise. Um, and it can be just as difficult as the day that you've experienced it to kind of come to terms with the actual effects of what happened and, you know, uh, really just have have to accept that as the new reality um, and how that that horrible experience becomes the new normal in terms of its after effects. Obviously, with Uvalde becoming the, the deadliest mass shooting now, one of the deadliest. It's it's definitely a lot more horrific as well because these are children that um, never got to really see any part of their adult lives. We in Parkland were coming into our own and we got to experience kind of a, a brief taste of what was to come. But these kids, I remember when I was their age, you know, I wanted to be an artist. See, I'm a tech guy now, so that's kind of transformed. But I think it's it's truly terrible that this person has robbed these young people of their right to dream and their right to grow into creative and playful people. And that, that really is what breaks my heart more than anything else is that this goes deeper than any of the other shootings and, um, that I can remember in my own life personally. Whenever something like this happens, one of the things that everybody does is they, they, they scramble to figure out what to do. And I, I have noticed, this is Gabe Howard personally, I've noticed that all of the people involved in those conversations don't tend to be the impacted. They're, they're not the Kais of the world, right? They're not the, they're not the survivors of the shootings. They're, they're people very, very removed. They're also often not even young people. I, I, don't, I don't think any of these committees, these discussions include elementary school kids, for example. They don't include high school kids. They just, they just include a bunch of people who weren't there. Maybe they're from the community, but they're, they're often adults from the community. And, and it occurred to me 
Maybe somebody should ask somebody who was there. And and we have that opportunity. Kai, what what do you, I hate to use the word recommend, but what are your thoughts on some sort of resolution to, to the mass violence problem that we seem to have in the United States right now? You know, I think, I think it all starts with humanizing the issue, as you said, um, because people have, especially in government, this assumption that young people, and, you know, we in Parkland largely proved this, uh, this notion to be wrong. Um, they have this notion that people are not capable of voicing clear and concise opinions regarding these kinds of serious, sophisticated, and tragic situations. Even just watching the interviews of some of these kids from Uvalde who survived, um, you really see that this experience has almost aged them in a way. And so they are, they're able to kind of convey how they're feeling and really humanize uh, what happened. And so it, it's not just what laws should be, you know, placed, you know, I'll I'll get to that. But in terms of just understanding that this is a circumstance that affects real people, removing yourself as somebody who should be considering uh, this is something that could happen in your backyard, could happen to your family. I I know tons of people. I remember I visited Christchurch the year before it happened, the year before the shooting in Christchurch. And, you know, they were all like, nothing could happen here. People in Christchurch, actually, and I thought this was crazy because I, I grew up on the East Coast, New York, New Jersey people would go to sleep in their homes and leave their doors unlocked. That to me was, was crazy. Even in towns like that where safety is kind of taken for granted, people didn't think it could happen there and it happened there. I, w- I would say that humanizing the issue and understanding that it could happen anywhere are part of the solutions as well. And then in addition to that, you know, you have the legislative angle, which is things like red flag laws, universal background checks, HRA, things like that, uh, common sense gun laws that just make sense things that are really meant to assure the safety and security of every individual who is, is a citizen of this country or, you know, just visiting and going in really just in passing. You know, you don't want to be affected by this and you, don't, you shouldn't feel like you, you can't be because that's for somebody else. It's not for you. I think there's been this overwhelming, strange belief that these circumstances are separate from certain groups of people versus others. And we've seen time and time again that that is not the case and that Safety should not be taken for granted, and we should pass these laws. We should humanize the issue by bringing survivors more deeply into the conversation. And we should also invest more heavily in mental health care. So for me, you know, I have worked really hard. I've worked with a bunch of world experts um, to kind of produce, you know, mindfulness uh, resources and material that we'll be launching in, uh, in an app. And all those things are really important. And also just, you know, making sure these people in these communities have the mental health and mindfulness and holistic mental health resources that they need to kind of come back as stronger people um, going forward. So those are the three problems that I would say are very important, which, you know, to re- repeat is humanizing the issue, passing legislation that makes sense, and investing very deeply in holistic and deeply involved mental health care for every individual involved and also peripherally involved as well. I want our listeners to know a little more about you than than just Parkland School shooting survivor. And in your bio, you say that you're an outspoken entrepreneurial engineering type. Now, I, I understand what all of those words mean separately, but when you put them <laughs> together, I, I got a little confused because I don't think I've ever met an outspoken engineer. My grandfather was an engineer and he and his colleagues were incredibly introverted. And when I think of outspoken, I, I think of people like myself, people loud, the, I, I just, I really think of all the Gabe Howards of the world. So before we move on, can you tell our listeners what you mean by outspoken entrepreneurial engineer? Well, 
I'll give you my background uh, as I answer that question. So me, I grew up in a very interesting household. So as a kid, you know, we would have my uh, my grandfather was a mathematician and also in a Wall Street analyst for a time. And my uncle's a rocket scientist. And my grandfather was also really big into, you know, having historical debates about world uh, phenomena. I guess, you know, back in the day, it was 2008 was going on around then in the world. So I was I was always very deeply tapped into what was going on in the world from a historical context, and also really just wanted to communicate with my grandfathers because he would use um, <laughs> he would use differential equation techniques or principles in casual conversation. When I got to elementary calculus, I would try to work those into conversations to fit in in my household because those are the conversations that we would have. Was oh, if you take the derivative of this, you can obviously see that this is yada yada yada. That was commonplace, um, you know, amongst uh, most of the people in my family who had a math background. And so I'd say between that and the, uh, the historical kind of uh, context of, of our dinner table conversations as well was probably one of the biggest driving factors in why I would call myself that. And also really seeing, you know, I, I had a strong female role model, my mother in my life, who started the tons of businesses. And so, you know, seeing that and seeing her be successful in her own right in a lot of respects was really something that kind of molded my personality to be entrepreneurial in my mother and, you know, to be kind of engineering oriented to my grandfather and my uncle also care about the circumstances of the world in our dinner table conversations and really try to understand how we could apply um, various different techniques and avenues to uh, real world and important circumstances from a day-to-day basis. Do you think that there is an engineering solution to this? I think I'm curious about that because it, in my mind, this seems very much like a social problem, but you're sort of looking at it through an engineering lens. And I, I think that's very interesting. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper into this as well. So I, from the mental health angle, I traveled throughout the, the country and the world giving mental health keynote speeches. That's something I did when I was in high school um, in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. I really felt that that was something that was really lacking was, you know, this overwhelming focus on gun control and legislation, you know, and obviously that's tremendously important and has 100% of place in this discussion and it needs to be implemented. But the other part that was deeply neglected for the first couple of years was the mental health side of the equation. And so for me, coming from a technological background and also a keynote speaking background, I decided to approach this in the following way. So when I was, when I would give my keynote talks, I noticed that people really loved the exercises that I would create that were tailored towards specific emotional states. So, you know, me being kind of an entrepreneur and an engineer, I was like, how do I scale this was the big question. So I decided to get actually became friends with one of the world experts in emotion theory and uh, mindfulness over at UC Berkeley. And so he and I worked together to assemble um, a thousand mindfulness materials or mindfulness practices that cover a range of meditations and contemplative mindfulness techniques to kind of relate the emotion analysis part of this uh, to the, uh, I guess, equation in terms of the technology I'm developing is to scale the the practices that I created for, you know, my keynote talks where I guided them towards specific emotional states. Um, I created an app that users could just open up, talk to, say anything they want, and the app will recognize how they're feeling from the sound of their voice and recommend mindfulness content to them in real time. So that, so kind of filtering uh, your mindfulness experience based on your real-time emotional states was a big thing that I felt would be a huge scalable factor in delivering uh, the kind of experience that I wanted over a, a large body of people and also, you know, just helping people you know, feel better in a, a casual sense as well. 
that's the overwhelming uh, solution to the mindfulness or mental health end of the spectrum that I want to deliver towards communities across the country that have been affected by gun violence and also just who struggle with mental health uh, situations as well, or people who are just having bad days. It's for anybody, really. And so then I realized I could roll this technology into, you know, mental health, being the emotion analysis uh, product I described before called the Joy app. And so over the course of the next couple of years, we'll be rolling st- stuff like that out. Being an entrepreneur and a technologist, a current UC Berkeley student, for me, I believe that the future is really something that has to pair with legislation and uh, and technology in order to achieve true kind of safety balance for every single individual in this country. You can't do one without the other. Um, and I think to to think in that way and to not work with big tech or to not work with tech companies that have innovative ideas would be something that um, would be a huge misstep in uh, the protection of our children going forward and also the regulation of the mental health states of just anybody in this country, providing them with the means to feel better at any given moment of the day. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me. Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. Hey everyone, my name is Rachel Starr Withers and I live with schizophrenia. I'm also the host of Inside Schizophrenia, a podcast that dives deep into all things schizophrenia, featuring personal experiences and experts to help you better understand and navigate schizophrenia. Inside Schizophrenia is a Psych Central and Healthline Media podcast and we're available right now on your favorite podcast player. Check us out. And we're back with Parkland shooting survivor Kai Korber. Whenever the younger generation starts talking about apps, I think there's this collective eye roll from people my age, the the over 40 crowd. We all just shake our heads and start mumbling that it, it just seems like like bullshit. And, and on one hand, it sounds very impossible. It sounds like science fiction. When you say that there's an app on my phone that can tell my emotions from the sound of my voice, I honestly think bullshit. But we do live in a time where I can text my wife and say, hey, we should take a vacation. And suddenly every ad I see for the rest of the day is about vacation spots. And and the ads are so individually tailored. They know what I like. Whenever I start talking about taking time off, my wife gets ads from Disney. I get ads from Las Vegas. I take my sister, for example. She loves the outdoors. She loves backpacking. So whenever she discusses taking time off, she gets beaches and backpacking trips. My, my parents, whenever 
they start talk about leaving town, they get cruises. So clearly these sophisticated algorithms already exist and they're selling us stuff. And we all see it. We all use them. The evidence is everywhere. We know that it exists. So it, it's not a difficult thing to pivot that if this technology can be used to sell us stuff, then this technology can be used for other things. Now we can argue about whether or not that's a good thing, but we know it's out there. And, you know, for the most part, people don't really seem to care. But as soon as you say that you want to apply that exact same technology or algorithm to emotions, suicidality, mental health, I really feel like a large section of society really goes back to rolling their eyes. It's basically a lot of, again, the over 40 crowd who just think that that entire concept is ridiculous and that it won't work. It really seems like people your age are on board, but the rest of, uh, you know, us old folks are not. Yeah, I'll say that um, I, I guess the funny answer to this is we had a lot of old people work on the development of this. So they believe in it. And these are world experts over at Berkeley, Stanford and Harvard that um, created the practices that are experts in emotion theory and development of emotion analysis technology. Um, and so people have dedicated their entire lives to this at tons of top schools. So I, I can say that the best way that I can um, ease the naysayers or, you know, kind of encourage them to believe is that. There are, you know, experts and great people working on this and have spent their entire lives really doing this. Um, and I'll also say that the Joy app, which is the app that um, I mentioned earlier that can, you know, recognize the user's emotional state in real time based on the sound of their voice and recommend mindfulness content to them in real time, um, will be the first of its kind when it launches. Because, you know, that's been another actually uh, a huge problem in the space is that nobody's been able to process the audio fast enough of unlimited duration to be able to have it produce a real-time classification of emotions or recognition of emotions. We're very proud to have been the first company to be able to produce something like that. This company held beta has been really fun to use. But I'll say that these are all things that are totally possible. We know that this is something that works. We know that we can do this. And we know that we in particular, being my company, Core AI, is fully capable given the experts that we have to be able to build something of higher quality uh, than is typically out there. We know that we can do all these things. So I would say that having this technology can only help. It will not hurt. But couldn't it hurt? I, I'm, I'm really thinking about privacy here. Now, maybe that isn't a concern for a lot of people. It, it's honestly fascinating to me that we have devices in our homes that are actively listening. I mean, we can ask our TV to turn on and it will. We can, we can say to our phones, play the Inside Mental Health podcast and it'll start up. No problem. People buy this stuff on purpose and, and they really like it. Now, I, I personally don't like it. It's one of the reasons that I never bought Alexa because I just, I don't want to feel like I'm being monitored. Like people are listening in on me 24 seven. I just, I just honestly have like a creep factor to it. But again, that's just me. Is this something that people should be concerned about with your app? You know, one of the things I can say from a scientific point of view is that people are concerned, you know, in terms of the uh, privacy circumstance or privacy uh, concerns regarding like things like Alexa or you know, your TV, for instance, is that those models or those algorithms that are trained to understand what you're saying are vastly different in terms of their capability um, than what we're talking about. So what we're talking about is a, a comparatively much more basic or simple, uh, it accomplishes much more of a simple task than uh, the complex task of analyzing speech and then processing that for its actual contextual value. So understanding what was said and how they said it, you know, and then applying those to recommendations for further content later on. 
for consumer or commercial purposes. For us, I, I would say that this would not be analyzing what you're saying. It would not be, we, we really don't, we honestly just as a company don't care about what's being said. The design of this product could not be, I, I guess, more positive in that we don't have some kind of a strange uh, Machiavellian, you know, I guess, profit maximization uh, goal in mind for this particular product at all. So I, I would say that the top to bottom, this product was designed, you know, from a Parkland shooting survivor, I, I designed it specifically to make sure that we were assuring, you know, privacy in the best way possible as well. I 100% understand the concerns surrounding, let's say, Alexa or, you know, your TV or uh, things that sound like they're out of minority report. <laughs> but, you know, it would not be, this would not be something to that scale. We're analyzing a completely different sound altogether. We're not processing the context of what's being said. I, I'm thinking of The Dark Knight, the movie with the Joker, where at, at the end of it, it, it shows Batman using everybody's cell phone and all of the screens to figure out where the Joker is. I, I know that that's a movie, but is is that kind of a visual representation of, of what you're going for? Um, um, in, in the sense that you have... Um, uh, well. I, I, I want to stray away from you know, the visual component, and I, I feel like that that particular example is really you know infringing on an individual's privacy, which is something I'm truly against. We're not going to be analyzing the visual component of information in the scene, not individual voices or individual keywords. Uh, I, I hope that's clear. Kai, this is all just fascinating. It's amazing to see what you've been working on for these past few years since Parkland. I have to say, it does sound like science fiction to me, but self-driving cars sounded like science fiction to me as well. And look where we are with that technology. I am super glad that you are the outspoken entrepreneurial engineering type. I, I think your work is incredible. Your first product is out. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, the Joy app app on your phone that, that directs you to mindfulness materials based on your real-time and vocally expressed emotional states. Um, from a thousand different mindfulness practices from world experts at Berkeley, Stanford, and Harvard, and really just is going to be uh, something that redefines the entire mindfulness space. And so we feel that that's going to be a really impactful product in the coming uh, months and years. We're very excited for it. Kai, thank you so much for being here. Where can folks find you online? Yeah, so for me personally, um, at Kai Stone Korber. Instagram, Twitter, and, uh, you know, Kai Korber on LinkedIn, if you want to add me there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for our website, it is projectaei.com. Um, that was the website for our research project that we've since incorporated into uh, Core AI Incorporated. So we'll be doing some stuff to kind of, uh, you know, uh, adjust that later on. But for now, we are, you know, projectaei.com. You can read about all our cool stuff um, and see some of the stuff that we're working on and, you know, I'm really just experiencing you know, some of this new revolutionary stuff we're working on. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to, you know, reading some of your, uh, you know, comments and suggestions regarding uh, some of the stuff that we're working on. Kai, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Um, you know, it's been an honor. You are very, very welcome. And a giant thank you to all of our listeners as well. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. I'm also an award-winning public speaker who could be available for your next event. My book is on Amazon, or you can grab a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It is absolutely free. And do me a favor, recommend the show to a friend or family member or a colleague. Referring the show is how we grow. And I will see everybody next Thursday 
on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.